that said, if you'd open up your Bibles now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, once again, we'll conclude this chapter this morning with a message entitled, No Separation. Romans chapter 8, beginning once again in verse 28, if you'll follow along with me. And here the Apostle Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, what a wonderful passage of scripture this is. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us and you would reveal, Lord, the security that we have in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, it may be one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. And I would say that Romans 8.28 may be one of the most comforting and reassuring verses within the Bible. As we are reminded that no matter what we go through in this life, we have an absolute knowledge that all things are constantly working together, resulting in good for those who are loving God and are called according to his purposes. Sometimes the truth of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is much easier to read and be thankful for when you're not in the midst of a trial. However, It becomes real within your life when a crisis comes and when a hardship happens. But in our human weakness, we often ask the question, how can I know that all things are truly going to work together for good in my life? That may be a question that you're asking this morning. The Apostle Paul presents several supporting truths that we are secure in the Lord. He uses five important words. They're like links within a chain. Some have referred to this as the golden chain of redemption. And this chain reaches from eternity past all the way to eternity future. This chain of God's saving work was forged in heaven and is unbreakable. As we continue, it's important to keep in mind the context of this passage. And by that, I mean the verses before and the verses after. Paul is not dealing with the subject of election here in this passage. He'll contend with that subject in the ninth chapter. Here, he's writing to the believer of how they can have confidence that all things are truly working together for good. How can you be reassured? Well, he begins by telling us in verse 29 of God's foreknowledge. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me begin by saying when you consider the subject of the foreknowledge of God and predestination, that you approach it very humbly. And you have this understanding that we are limited in our finite minds to comprehend the full extent of its meaning. The sovereignty of God, as well as his other attributes, are beyond our complete understanding. The Lord told us through the prophet Isaiah, my ways, they're not your ways. My thoughts... They're not your thoughts. There are certain things that God does and certain aspects of who he is that I do not fully yet comprehend. 
And therefore, because I have limited understanding, I must be careful in coming to a conclusion that doesn't agree with the rest of the revelation of God's character throughout the scriptures. The word foreknowledge is used seven times in the New Testament. This word in the Greek is where we get our English word prognosis. In Christian theology, foreknowledge refers to the all-knowing, omniscient nature of God, whereby he knows the reality before it is real. All things and events before they happen, and all people before they exist. Both Old and New Testaments speak of God's foreknowledge. Nothing in the future is hidden from the eyes of God. In the New Testament, God's foreknowledge is clearly linked to the death of Christ on the cross to purchase our salvation. You may recall in the book of Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that when Peter stood up to proclaim the gospel, really for the first time, he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it wasn't possible that he should be held by it. Here the apostle Peter declares, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus rising again from the dead was no accident. It was actually predetermined according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, God always had a plan. It was no surprise to him when Adam and Eve fell. It was no surprise to him that all these things were unfolding. He wasn't taken off guard. He always knew. I don't fully understand that, but I praise God that he's always had a plan and he knows what he's doing. That's how you can know that all things are working together for good if you trust that God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. I think of what Peter would write later on on this subject in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 when he said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest to us in these last times. Think about that. Do you understand what that's saying? Before the world ever was, God in eternity past, wherever that was is outside of time, mind is blown when you try to comprehend it because you can't. But the fact remains, before anything was ever created, Jesus was the lamb slain before. God always knew what would happen. It was all part of his plan. He was going to work all things together for good. Knowing that God knows everything that he knew before the world began brings tremendous comfort to me. Not only does this relate to our salvation, but folks, listen, it relates to you personally. The psalmist declared it in this way in Psalm 139. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew us before we ever existed. He knew the number of our days. The Lord said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed you, the Lord said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We don't understand how this all works, but we do understand that God knew beforehand. And even though we step out into what is unknown to us, it isn't unknown to God. 
And so no matter what it is, I can trust that he is working all these things together for good. This crisis, this difficulty, it takes me by surprise, but it doesn't take God by surprise. He always knew, which means if I trust him and I know that he loves me, he has a plan in the midst of this, which I don't understand at this moment. And therefore, I can say I know that things are working together for good in my life because of God's foreknowledge. He has a plan for you. And there are even things that God may allow that we don't understand that he uses for good because we love him and we're called according to his purposes. The foreknowledge of God, the plans of God. The second link in the chain, not only did he foreknow us, it says, but he also predestined us. The word predestined means to determine as by a boundary. Literally, it means to mark out beforehand or set the limits or boundaries in advance of any place or thing. When it's used of persons, it means to put limitations upon that person and it conveys the idea to determine his destiny. Divine predestination means that God has a purpose that is determined long before it's brought to pass. It also implies that God is infinitely capable of planning and then bringing about what he has planned. In Romans 8.29, Paul is saying that God has predetermined the destiny or the future of each believer. And because you are in Christ today, he has predetermined your ultimate good full of his love and grace. In the opening of his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers and encouraged them with this glorious truth. He said, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What a wonderful truth this is today to know that God chose us before the foundations of the world. This should spark such tremendous gratitude that we should desire to worship God, that he would want us for all of eternity to be part of his family. It's amazing to consider that he chose us before the foundations of the world. Again, I don't fully understand it, but I praise God for it. Listen, if God were small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to handle my problems. God is big enough, so I, I'm just thankful for it. I love what D.L. Moody said concerning this point. He said, I'm so glad God chose me before the foundations of the world because he surely wouldn't have chosen me now. I'm just grateful for it. And when I consider the attribute of God's sovereignty, I find that I am most encouraged and most thankful and grateful, not when I am debating it, but when I am simply receiving it. When I'm just blessed to know that God is sovereign, I can take it at face value, and I don't fully understand it, but I appreciate it. What a blessing to be chosen, to be predestined. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Paul then reminds the believers that they were predestined for a purpose. There is a purpose for your life. There's a reason for your existence. He said they were predestined for what purpose? To be conformed to his image. That is the image of Christ who is the preeminent one among many brethren. The word conformed, it means to bring to the same form with some other person or thing. It means to render like. It refers to the outward expression of an inward essence of nature. In the process of sanctification, the saint is transformed in their heart by the work of the Holy Spirit to resemble Jesus. There is an inner change that results in an outward expression. Some things that we go through in this life are being used to make us more like Jesus. It's part of the process. It's part of his plan. Let me explain it in this way. The image of the Lord Jesus in the believer 
It's not accidental, but it is similar to a likeness of a child with its parents. We just dedicated a baby to the Lord. And holding that baby in my hands and looking at its parents, I can see who this baby looks like. There are character traits built into that child that come by way of the parents. So that when that child is born, it has certain aspects of its outward expression that remind you of its parents. Now, when it's a baby in this physical birth, you see some of the, boy, he looks a lot like his mom. Or he looks a lot like his dad. Or, or maybe he looks like grandpa. That's what grandpa would say. And so you're, you're looking at this and you're thinking this. But then as that child grows... You know what you see? Those character traits, they become even more visible and recognizable in the physical birth. Folks, listen, the same happens in the spiritual birth. It's a new birth, a spiritual birth where we are children of God and the spirit of God places within us the traits of Christ. And as a new believer, the Bible says a new believer is like a baby. Those traits are there, but but. They're not quite recognizable. Something's happened. Something's different. But as that person begins to grow and the Spirit of God is working within them and as they grow as a believer, it becomes more clear that they're taking on the characteristics of Christ because they're being conformed into his image. He is increasing. They are decreasing. We're being transformed, the Bible says, becoming more like Christ. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Becoming more like Christ, He has saved us. He has predestined us for a purpose. And that is to be conformed into the image of Christ. I love what one person said. The Bible wasn't written to satisfy your curiosity, but to make you conform to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. To be conformed into the image of Jesus foreknown, predestined. Oh, but we're also called. Here's another link in this glorious chain of redemption. We've been called. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. How can I know that all things are working together for good in my life? Because you've been called by God. This calling that we received, the Bible tells us, it's a holy calling. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul declared, he has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. It's a holy calling. Not only is it a holy calling, folks, listen, it's also a heavenly calling. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1, the writer there says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. It is a holy calling we have received. It is a heavenly calling. It is a high calling that we have received from the Lord. Have you responded to the call of God on your life? Many people hear the call, which comes through the revelation of creation and even conscience. God reveals himself in what he has created so that man is without excuse. But God also can bring light to bear on man's conscience through creation, through conscience. Man is made aware of something greater than himself, and even he can Hear the call as it were, but not everybody responds to the call of God. Jesus, when he was preaching, he would say repeatedly, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what is being said. They had ears to hear, but not everybody was listening. Not everybody was responding to the calling. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, today, 
If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Have you responded to the call of God? Do you hear him calling you? Are you resisting today? Do not resist. The fourth link in this golden chain of redemption is we've been justified. Whom he called, these he also justified. And we talked about this earlier in our study in Romans, but let me remind you in case you forgot. You can't be told enough the blessing of justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous, just as if you never sinned. The word in simple terms means what is right, what conforms to what is right, and the standard of what is right being defined by God and not man. The moment that a person by faith believes in the finished work of Christ, they are justified instantaneously by an act of God wherein he forgives our sins, he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, and he declares that we are now in a right standing before him. We're justified. We are justified by the work of Christ on the cross. We are justified by faith in the work of Christ on the cross. We are justified by the blood of Christ that was shed upon the cross. And when we are justified by faith, we are pronounced righteous in the sight of God. How do I know that all things are working together for good? Because God has justified you. He has made you righteous in his sight. God, through Jesus Christ, forgave our sins, accepted us as righteous in his sight, ungodly as we have been, and he has put us in a right standing with himself. How can I be sure that all things are working together for good? Because God knows what he's doing. His foreknowledge. God's predestined you. He's called you. He's justified you, but that's not all. It also says he's glorified you. He's glorified you. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. It means to render glorious, to cause to have a splendid greatness, to clothe in splendor, to invest with dignity, to give anyone esteem or honor by putting him into honorable honorable position. It's actually used in what is called the aorist tense. And what that means, as it speaks of God glorifying us, God who sees the end from the beginning and whose decree and purpose of all future events are comprehended and fixed in the mind of God, once God's marvelous sequence begins with his foreknowledge of those he would call. It's carried through so inevitably that in this verse, Paul speaks of us as being glorified in the past tense. Meaning it's already happened. That might come as a shock. It comes as a shock to me because I don't see anything glorified here. But from heaven's perspective, again, God being outside of time, knowing the beginning from the ending and everything in between sees us already as glorified, completed. I see you this morning as I look around this room seated at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Great to see you. But the Father sees you seated in heavenly places. It's already done. It's finished. He, oh, I don't see that yet, but I'm confident of the fact because God knows it. He's predestined. He's called me. He's justified me. And if he's done all that, the Bible says, by the way, he also glorified you. It's already done. And I don't understand it. I just praise God for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is there anybody with the amen for that this morning? That's great news. If you're not, I haven't been clear. This is the greatest, the most daring anticipation of faith. God's already it's glorified. I'm in the process, but God sees it already done. In light of this golden chain of redemption, the Apostle Paul will close this chapter with what some have called the hymn of security. And he begins by asking, a series of rhetorical questions. 
that he no doubt assumes the believers would be able to answer because of everything he's been saying throughout this letter. Here's the series of rhetorical questions. Look at what it says. What then shall we say to these things? Let's just pause there. That's question number one. What shall we say to these things? Truthfully, these things, they leave me speechless, which is really rare in my case. I don't even know, what do I say to this? I can only think of a few things to say, like praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Bless the Lord. Thank you. I mean, it's the same thing. I just keep going back. There's only so many things I can say in light of what I know about what God's done for me. What are we going to say to this? I can say, thank you, God. But then he takes it a step further. Here's another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, at first reading, you read the word if God is for us. And it would seem to present a possibility. If God's for you. This isn't a possibility. This is actually a fulfilled condition. It could better read because God is for us. He is for us. If he foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us, he's definitely for us. And so because I know that, because God is for me, the question then becomes, who can be against me? You think, well, I can think of a lot of people that are against me, actually. Yeah, okay, but if God's for you, if you're on his side, who's going to stand up against God? No one. So the question is, if God is for you, who can be against you? The response, the proper response in light of who God is and what you know, no one can stand against me. Oh, there's many weapons formed against us, but they can't ultimately prosper because God is for me. I wonder if this morning you know that God is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. I think of the words, you remember when Jacob, after Joseph, he thought, had died. He said, all things are against me. He didn't know. That Joseph was still alive and God was working all of these things out and he had an ultimate plan that was going to save the entire nation of Israel, which would ultimately lead to the Messiah that would save the whole world. But in that moment, he said, everything's against me because he didn't know what was coming. He didn't understand. And sometimes we say that, everything's against me, man. Nothing is working out the way I want it to. Ah, ah, but God's for you. He's doing something. And so if he's for you, who can be against you? No one. Well, if you doubt that, maybe you say, well, I don't know, John. I'm not really sure of that. Please look at the next verse and be convinced. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I don't know if God is for me. You know what Paul does? He says, look at the cross. If you don't think God's for you, then just consider once again what he was willing to sacrifice to save you. He gave his absolute very best that he had to save sinners like us. That is the one demonstration that forever proves and solidifies God is for you. Look to the cross. He didn't spare his own son. He could have, but he didn't. Why? Because he loved you, because he loved me. Therefore, if I know that, then I can be confident, even in the midst of the most painful circumstances, to realize that God took care of my greatest problem that I will ever have in life, then he must be working all of these things together for good. You know the greatest problem that the world has? It's not cancer. You could heal someone of cancer and they could still die and go to hell. It's not world hunger, although it is a problem and a concern and we ought to seek to help. You could feed someone and they could still die and go to hell. 
The greatest problem that mankind has is salvation. How does an unholy person get to a holy God? They can't do it in and of themselves. There has to be another way, and that way is Jesus Christ. And God solved that problem by not sparing his own son to deliver us, to save us. So, friend, you can know with absolute certainty today that God's going to work it together for good, whatever it is that you're in right now. That's how much he loves you. I believe that's why it's so important to take communion on a regular basis because we remind ourselves. As often as you do this, remember, mate, we remind ourselves of what he's done, of how he feels about us. Well, let me ask you a few other questions. Verse 33, who's gonna bring charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. When you think of the word justify, it means to declare innocent. It is a word that's used in the courtroom. If somebody comes up and they are guilty of a charge, then they're going to say guilty. And the fact is, we're all guilty because of sin. Yet, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. And so in the courtroom, as it were, we have been declared not guilty. Actually, it's more than not guilty. It never happened, even though it did. But he declares us righteous because the blood of Christ removes all of my sin. So if I have been justified, who's going to bring a charge against me? No one is the proper response. No one can. The only person that could condemn me actually justified me. So it doesn't matter who it is, no one can condemn me because only God is able to, and because of Christ, he has justified me. There is no charge laid against me. Well, who is that who's going to condemn you? We already read there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ, and I'm in Christ. Therefore, I am not condemned. It's Christ who died. He's even risen, Paul said. He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. So is he up there? He justified me. He's praying for me. Is he now going to condemn me? Is he going to remove his justification from me? No. I'm secure in Christ because of what he has done for me. I am trusting in what he has done. And therefore, no one can bring charge against me. No one can condemn me. And Jesus is consistently praying for me right now. And for you as well. Praying for us. Making intercession. Well, what about separation? Verse 35, great question. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If we can't be condemned, and we can't have a charge brought against us, well, can somebody, is it possible for somebody to actually separate us from the love of Christ if we're in Christ? And then Paul goes on to look at some of the things that people might consider that could separate us. For example, he asked, how about tribulation? Can tribulation separate me from the love of Christ? The word tribulation it means to crush. It means to press together. It conveys the idea of something being squeezed and placed under pressure or crushed beneath a weight. Maybe you say, man, I, you just described my life. That's how I feel right now. Crushed, squeezed in a tribulation. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in John chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Tribulation can't separate us from the love of Christ. Well, if not tribulation, what about distress? Mm, a lot of people stressed out. The word means a narrow space. It figuratively describes tight places. Believers in tight places, almost with no way out. It's like you're, you're hemmed in. You're encircled. And it's causing great distress. You say, again, that is my life. That's where you are this morning. By the way, you're in the, you're in the right place. This is a good spot to be this morning. It's good for you to be here. Good for me to be here. Stressed out 
can that separate me? Listen, Isaiah chapter 43, talk about tight spaces, check this out. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I've called you by your name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, that's pretty tight, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the rivers, that's a little stressful. They're not going to overflow you. Well, what about when you walk through the fire? You're not going to be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Can distress separate you from the love of God? No. Well, what about famine or nakedness? Nope. Well, what about peril? Or sword, speaking of execution. No. Listen, there were believers in this day and even in our own day who have been executed, martyred for their faith. Did that separate them from the love of God? Actually, that was the doorway into the presence of God. To be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord, is to be present with the Lord. Even death itself can't separate me or peril or persecution. None of these things, in other words. And then Paul says in verse 37, yet in all these things, everything that he's just listed, that are definitely a concern. All these things, look at this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The question is, can anything separate us from the love of God? The answer to everything was no. In fact, we're actually more than conquerors in the midst of all of those things because of his love for us. This word, these words, more than conquerors, means to come off more than victorious or to gain a surpassing victory. It's actually used in the present tense which signifies continually. We are more than conquerors continually in Christ. It describes a person who is super victorious, who wins more than an ordinary victory, who's overpowering an achievement and abundant victory. It really describes a lopsided victory in which the enemy or the opponent is completely routed. This isn't the language of conceit. This is the language of confidence in Christ. Christ's love, Christ's sacrifice, conquered death. And because of his love, we are more than conquerors through him. It's a victory which is more than a victory. More than a conqueror is one who by the grace and the gift of God and in the strength of God within them actually takes the very things that are designed to destroy them and they become stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. That's only God does that. With all that Paul has considered, he comes to a solidified conclusion when he says in verse 38, for I am persuaded. Now pause there. I am persuaded. It means an overwhelming idea of certainty. We would say beyond the shadow of a doubt. There's not even a doubt in my mind. You can't convince me otherwise. And he uses this word persuaded, also translated convinced, in a perfect tense. And it indicates a, listen, a past action with continuing result or effect which could be rendered, became persuaded in the past and continued to have a settled persuasion. It's solidified in my heart. You, you can't shake it out of me. It doesn't matter what I'm confronted with. This I know for sure. I'm persuaded of this. And then he goes on to list these things that confronted him. He says, well, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or principalities, 
which would refer to fallen principalities, fallen angels. Demonic spirits can oppress, can attack, but they can't separate me from the love of Christ. Height, depth, any created thing, things I know about, things I don't know about, things I'm prepared for, things I'm not prepared for, none of it can separate me from the love of Christ, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am fully convinced and persuaded. Keep this in mind. Paul's last epistle that he wrote was 2 Timothy. And you would think, as he's awaiting his martyrdom, there in the Mamertine prison, this dark and dank place, he's about to die. Church history records for us that he was beheaded for his faith. And while he's waiting to be executed, he writes 2 Timothy. And you would think, boy, this would be probably a real downer, this letter. But it's really a letter of victory. And he says something that ties into what we just read. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says this, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. There's that word is again. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You're still persuaded? Still? I mean, you're about to be executed. This is the end, Paul. You might rethink your hope. You think this is going to work. He was absolutely, nothing had changed is what I'm telling you. He wrote it in Romans. It hadn't changed when he was about to lay down his life for the cause of the gospel. He said, I'm still persuaded. You still can't shake it. You can't take it from me. Even death itself can't take it from me. I am persuaded. Paul knew. How do I know that all these things are working together for good in my life? Because of God's foreknowledge, he knows what he's doing. He's always known. He has a future and a hope for you, plans prepared for you, a glorious future. The foreknowledge of God, he predestined me. He, he called me. He's justified me. He's glorified me. He loves me. And he loves you. And he proved it when he didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. And so we can be persuaded this morning to even what we don't understand or what is painful or what is difficult to go through that God's using it for his ultimate purpose and my ultimate good because of his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There's no separation. What a blessing to open the chapter with no condemnation. To end the chapter with no separation. And in between, all things are working together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Perhaps this morning, you read these things and you believe these things. But you're like that father who met Jesus when he came down from the mountain with his disciples, whose son was possessed by a demonic spirit. And he pleaded with Jesus to deliver his son. And he said to Jesus, Lord, if you can do anything, please help us. Jesus responded to him and said, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. And then the father, with pure honesty, said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus met his need. Maybe you have a need today. Maybe you're in the midst of a tribulation, a tight place. 
you're in the midst of distress. And it seems that the goodness of God and the promises of God don't match up with your circumstances. And you need prayer. We want to pray for you this morning. The Bible says when one part of the body of Christ hurts, we all hurt. We all feel that. And that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Today might be your day. Tomorrow might be mine. And so if that is you, it could be one of you, a few of you, as I've done in the last few services, I want to pray for you today. Let's take these things to the one that didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. And let's commit these things to him. You just, I need prayer today. And you know who you are. We all have those days. And so I'd like for you to stand right now and we're going to close. And I'm going to pray for you. Whoever you are. Could be one of you. Could be many of you. Just go ahead and stand and wait for you. God bless you. Awesome. The Lord knows all the details. He knows everything that's going on. He knows all the circumstances. He's well aware. He's always known. And he has always had a plan. Anybody else today? Say, that's me. I want to pray for you today. Man, those of you who are still seated, as we often do here at Calvary, we, we, we pray for each other. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, I've ended a few minutes early on purpose, is I would like for you to, these people, just look around you if you're seated and you see where they are, I want you to go up to them and just lay your hand on their shoulder and say, what's your name and how can I pray? And if, if you're going to be prayed for it, just say, this is who we are and could you pray for our... And you don't have to go into... God knows all the details. So just, just say, this, I, we just need prayer for this. Short, sweet. And then allow these people to pray for you in the spirit. Allow them to be led in their prayer and, and trust that God will lead them as they pray for you, okay? So right now, get up. Go around these people and then as you begin to pray for them and then I'll close us in prayer. Right now, go to those people, know where you're going, ask them their name, how can I pray for you and then pray. To the point. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the saints, God. Thank you, Jesus.
Father, we thank you this morning for the prayers of the saints. Lord, your people, Lord, it it rises to your throne, your word says, like incense. Lord, it's pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for hearing the things that were spoken. Lord, thank you for who you are. And I pray for those today who may be in our midst who do not yet know you. They don't know you and they couldn't say God is for me. But Lord, I pray that you would convict them of sin, that they would repent and turn from sin and receive Christ into their life and be forgiven, have the hope of heaven. Lord, do that right now. Your spirit is able. And if that's you, I would encourage you to cry out to God where you're at. Say, God, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I turn to you to be my Savior and my Lord. And he will hear you and he will answer. And so we thank you, Lord, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, let's all stand together. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise God for that. Awesome. This coming Wednesday night, we are beginning a brand new series together on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you, if you'd like to join us, to come out on Wednesday night. A great time to begin. We just completed the study through the life of David in First and Second Samuel, and now pausing through the Bible to study the subject and really, I would say, the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I'd encourage you to come and look forward to what God's going to do in our midst. If not, may the Lord bless you. May you have a wonderful week in the Lord and growing in the grace and, and knowledge of his love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.